verses, I think, 9 to 14. And if you're using a pew Bible, that's page 1832, the year before it, Wilber, Wilber, William Wilberforce died. We're doing a series right now called um, Above All, Above, On Above, On Things Above, sorry. On Things Above, Heavenly Mindedness and Earthly Good. Um, because one of the themes in the book of Colossians is that the old saying, the old canard, which I can't figure out if that's a canary or a a millard duck, um, is that when people are heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. And there are all these people who are just, they're just too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. And that, that, and and Jesus' claim and the claim of the Bible is that, that the opposite is actually true. That heavenly mindedness produces earthly goodness. That's the theme of Colossians. It's the theme of much of Jesus' teaching. It turns out it's the theme of the whole Bible. So let's look at it in this passage. This is Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Colossians is a letter written to the Christian believers in the city of Colossae in central Turkey by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. He'd never met them, and he's trying to encourage them in their faith. Verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience and joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I said last week that um, you can you can no longer re- no more reasonably assume that a person who is heavenly minded has their head in the clouds than you can reasonably assume that a person who is earthly minded has their head in the sand. To say either one really is to just demagogue. The question is, what does somebody believe and what does it produce? Right? Does heavenly mindedness produce earthly goodness? rather than just accusing the people you aren't, right? And one of the things I said last week that I think is really important to remember and recognize is that there's two huge clarity problems whenever we even talk about this, because one, you would be surprised how hard it is to agree on what counts for earthly goodness. There's a lot of disagreement as what counts as earthly goodness. Um, for example, one of the things I'm doing this summer is I've asked Keith Yandel, who is a retired professor of philosophy from the University of Wisconsin, who is also a devout believer, um, to mentor me in, um, in ethical philosophy. So our first meeting this coming Monday, I had to read a, a short essay on the meaning of the word morality in philosophy, which was only 27 pages long to just define the word morality and how it's used in ethical philosophy, right? It would be great if agreeing on what was earthly goodness was was as easy as agreeing that apple pie was good or for Wisconsin, maybe more accurately, cherry cobbler. But the fact still remains that there's just a lot of disagreement about what counts for earthly goodness. And here's the problem with this. 
whether or not you're heavenly minded is going to define what you think is earthly good. And if you're of earthly mind, that is, you you don't intentionally have the mind of Christ, that is, looking to see what he would say is of earthly good, you're going to, by definition, reject the things he says are of earthly goodness. And so it's going to be really difficult. And we shouldn't pretend that we can bypass this to answer this question, right? But the second thing, and just as important, and this is what this series is focusing mostly on, is what do we as Christians even mean by heavenly-mindedness? Because there's a kind of heavenly mindedness that is a I want I want to die and live again after that And I want to live in a place that is of a significantly higher socioeconomic class than I presently live in And so I want streets of gold and you know trees that like bear fruit every Month and if you eat it you're healed of anything and like you know having free electricity because apparently Jesus the Lamb lights up the whole city. And, I mean, it sounds like green energy, too. I might want to live in a place like that. I mean, that—and so I'm going to be good enough to go there, and therefore, in order for me to feel that way, I'm going to feel like I'm better than everybody else who doesn't do the things that I do, and therefore, um, performing and being self-righteous is my religion. That's what heavenly-mindedness is. If that's what heavenly-mindedness is, which is, I think, what a lot of our non-believing neighbors and friends think it is— then they would be right that that's of no earthly good. And I think we would agree that that's of no earthly good. And so—sorry, I gotta skip ahead here. And so one of the things that I talked about last week is that when you look at the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians claims very clearly that heavenly-mindedness, when understood rightly, creates, it defines, and it motivates earthly goodness. Right? And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And we talked about this last week, but there's something I want to bring out this week that I didn't last week. Jesus, it's the Sermon on the Mount, it's the big sermon at the beginning of Matthew, and he gets up and he says, listen, you, and in this case, he's, the you is plural, in Greek there's both a singular you and a plural you. And this is the plural you, so he's talking to people who believe and trust and follow him. He says, you, that is the church, all people who believe in and follow Jesus, you are the salt of the earth, and he says that you, that's us, are the light of the world. That is, in the world, that is the surrounding non-believing culture, what is the function of those who believe and serve and follow Jesus? And Jesus' claim is, that we are a, we are what salt was in the ancient world, that is a preservative. That is, our presence within our culture should serve to restrain the progress of evil. And that we should be the light of the world, that is, is that in the true sense of the word progressive, we should be a progressive light. That is, we should be able to help people see a way forward. That should be what we're good for in the world. We should be like salt and like a city on a hill and a light put up on a lampstand. But when you look at that, this passage, there's, there's three implicit claims Jesus is making that are really important. The first we talked about last week is that if we're heavenly-minded, we should be of immense earthly good in restraining evil and in leading towards goodness. But secondly, and sometimes people don't see this, is that he says that if we are that— If we are the salt of the earth like we're supposed to be, and if we are the light of the world like we should be, then the result is going to be what in the surrounding non-believing world? He says, what will happen is they will see your good works, that is, your earthly goodness, and they will glorify your Father in heaven. 
That is, Jesus' claim isn't just that heavenly-mindedness produces earthly goodness. His claim is that heavenly-mindedness produces earthly goodness, which produces more heavenly-mindedness, which produces more earthly goodness, which produces more heavenly-mindedness, which produces more earthly goodness, and so on. In wider and wider circles. And then, so therefore, Jesus' question is, will we be what we are? He doesn't say you, mu- you could be. The, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. He says, you are. Like, there is a salt shaker that God has for the world. It's the church, and he goes like this. You, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are a city on a hill. And the question is, will you and I be what we are? Because if you aren't, then they're right about us. That that salt that isn't salt anymore is really good for nothing but to be trampled under people's feet. He says, right, he says, it's good for, if it's not salty, if salt isn't salty, like think about this, what does salt do besides be salty? Right? It's kind of a one-trick pony, right? Salt? You're kind of like salt. You're just always doing the same thing. Like you don't even know any new jokes. It's just always salt. And so Jesus is like, if salt isn't salty— It's not doing anything. I mean, all it can be is like, maybe it can be part of the gravel, right? It's good for nothing but to be cast underfoot and trampled my Ben. And just for reference, trampled by bunnies good, trampled by people bad. You don't, being trampled by men is not a positive biblical metaphor, okay? Let's just keep people awake. So, he says it about heavenly-mindedness. So then the question is, okay, Nick, then what is heavenly-mindedness? And when you come to the book of Colossians, Colossians argues all the way through very clearly, heavenly-mindedness is Christ-mindedness. That is, to be heavenly-minded is not to have your heads up on the streets of gold looking at all the, all the benefits of the Riches of what you can enjoy and what you can take in and what you can have in heaven to be heavenly minded is for your mind and heart to be wrapped up in the mind and heart of the one who is king of heaven and that is Jesus and it says in Colossians and we'll talk about this next week that it says when it talks about Jesus just a few verses later it says it's Jesus that created the heavens and the earth they both belong to him and it's Jesus whose total end game and redemption finally was that all things in heaven and on earth would be reconciled to each other that's like 6 verses later Jesus end game is that the division between heaven and earth that happened in the human fall would be fully redeemed so that ultimately there would be a day in which the dwelling place of God would be with people. That a recreated earth and a recreated heaven could be one. And that's exactly how the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, ends. Right? The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to the recreated earth, and the angel declares, now the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will be their God, and they will be his people. Right? Now, when you recognize that, we look at this passage, so what does heavenly-mindedness look like? Paul says it's very clear for him that there's going to be four results. These act- this actually isn't what heavenly-mindedness is. This is what heavenly-mindedness produces. He says if, if you have heavenly-mindedness, like this happens, there's four things that are going to mark a life of heavenly-mindedness. They're gonna, it's going to bear fruit in every good work. One of the things to look at in this passage, if you read it later for yourself, is to take out a little pencil or something and mark in your Bible every time in this passage the word all or every is used. 
a totalizing word. You're going to find it's there a bunch of times in this passage, and that's important. Every, in this case, the, so the, the, the Greek word for every is the same word for all, and in English, every and all can mean different things. The point of this verse is, is that it's intentionally ambiguous. It's that there are lots of them, and they are of varying kinds. That is, a life that is heavenly-mindedness is full of all kinds of good works. There's not like one good thing you do when somebody's like, like are you a good person? You're like, yeah, I do this. <laughs> that's, not the Christ- that's not what a Christian life— a Christian might do a this, but— I mean, we just seek to have all kinds of varied kinds of goodness. Like, we just want to do—like, that's what happens when you're heavenly-minded. Little things, lots of little things you do out of a heavenly-mindedness, right? Second is growing in the knowledge of God, which may sound like a religious output, but the idea is that if, if you have a knowledge of God, the way you look at the world is clarified, and you know what is good and what isn't so that you can know what to do. A moral fog— over a person who's supposed to do all kinds of every good work doesn't work. There has to be clarity if we're going to do all kinds of every kind of good work. Does that make sense? The third thing is that there's an enormous strengthening of endurance and patience, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, and there is an indestructible joy in thankfulness. Okay, we'll get to all those here in just a minute. Now, what I want to show— as kind of the heart of what I, I want to talk about in this passage is this, that all of these things are connected very directly to Christ-mindedness, to what God has done, who God is, how God acts. That is, we're, we're just, we're not materialists. That, the, that God is real. He is wholly other than us. He cannot be reduced to the actions of psychology. He is, and he acts in and on us. And our inability to perceive it perfectly and to describe it scientifically does not limit the rationality of it being true. And so as you go through these, every single one of them is directly connected to something about God. So the first one, for example, good works. The statement about having a life full of good actions and the statement about being full of the knowledge of God— are actually connected in the verse in a way that you wouldn't necessarily pick up in the NIV translation, which isn't their fault. They've got to make choices about how they're going to translate things. But if you look at the verse, so it says this, and we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, right? And the first two things of the life that pleases Him in every way are given here, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. Now, the syntax of this in the original actually takes those two things and it puts the verbs together in the middle and it puts what they signify on the outside. Now, that's not considered bad writing in Greek. It's just considered bad writing in English. That's why the translators had a problem, right? The point of that is, is that what you can do is you can put together these two words and show how similar they are and connect their meanings to each other. You see how they're both ag words? They're both Wisconsin words, right? Growing and bearing fruit, right? And there's a connection between— see, agriculture, Wisconsin people know that there's a connection between— growing and bearing fruit, right? We actually know that cherries aren't, did not grow at the grocery store, right? And so this, there's a connection between the fact that growing in the knowledge of God bears fruit in every kind of good work. Do you see how that works? And if you think about it a little bit, the growing is logically prior to the bearing, isn't it? It is the knowledge of God that bears the good fruit. 
It precedes it. Knowing God, knowing what God is like, then directs us as to what is good to do in all kinds of different ways and motivates what should be done in all kinds of ways. So that these two are are deeply connected with one another, and you can't just say, well, I'll be a good person, but I'm not going to learn about God. That doesn't really work. You need the vine if you're going to get the grapes. You got to have the tree to get the cherries. It's just the way it works. They're connected to each other. Disinterest in heavenly mindedness and in Christ will produce a morally and actionally confused and demotivated life. The second is the connection between great endurance and patience and God's glorious might. So you get on to the next one, and and this one is really stark, where it says, it's going to produce an enormous amount of endurance and patience, and those are going to come from God's power. Um, In the NIV translation, which is a perfectly good one, it says this, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So you've got the word strengthened, power, and might. Do you notice the emphasis on strongness? Right? Now, in the, in, in the original, this word for strength and power are like the same word. It's meant to sound redundant. Um, through his powerful empowering, you will be strengthened according to his glory, or his might, his, his glorious might. That is, there's this repetitive emphasis on that God is mighty, That might is extremely powerful in producing in us endurance and patience. Now, I'm actually going to end with this, what this means, um, a little bit more deeply. But I just want you to see this connection. Do you see the connection? Glorious might with great endurance. What produces great endurance? Glorious might produces great endurance and patience. What does this come from? It comes from God. It comes from God's power, right? And then the last is that joy comes from gratitude to God for counting us worthy of his inheritance. So the fourth thing is, is that um, knowing God, being heavenly minded by being Christ minded, produces happiness. But it produces the sort of happiness that is joy, that is based in thankfulness for what God has done. Now, if God exists— God is going to be the most psychologically advanced counselor that there is. And so it should be no surprise that God realizes one of the most fundamental secrets to human happiness is thankfulness. I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to know this. That people who wake up in the morning and they count their blessings, they're thankful for what is good about what's, what's in their life, rather than how they're being hurt, oppressed, broken, sick, whatever, are happier people. It's just a fact. The difference between that general psychological truth that belongs to God, even though it can be understood by everyone, is the fact that the most powerful thing to be thankful for, and therefore the most rightly motivating fact of thankfulness, is what God has done for humanity and for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the difference. The difference is is instead of the the way scale of how much you can endure being that you cobble together the small stones of your worldly thankfulness, that there is a 50-ton rock that sits on it before you put anything else on it. That's all. Because ultimately what motivates your patience and your endurance is if you can imagine kind of a scale, there is a weightiness to your thankfulness. 
And when your thankfulness breaks down because your trials or your difficulties or your persecutions or your brokenness or your whatever weighs more, you blow up. Patience and endurance fails you. That's why you can think of yourself as a patient person most of the time, and then when you really get into it in that one argument with your whoever, you just like, you lose everything. You lose it. Right? It's because most of the time, what weighs down your thankfulness and produces joy and therefore inducts you into endurance and patience weighs more than the other thing. When this weighs more, you go down. Okay? And so if what you do is you cobble together all of your earthly thankfulness and you get it on there, that may work, you know, if you, especially if you're really creative. You might be able to get enough on there to get your scale like this most of the time. The difference is, is that if you recognize that out of thankfulness, you actually experience the joy that comes from the fact that in the Son God loves, in Christ, Christ in his life, death, and resurrection has freed you if you trust in him from the dominion of darkness. That is, not only the penalty of sin, but the fact that you were enslaved and owned. You were under its dominion, the dominion of darkness. And that through Christ, you have been liberated from that, remade, completely transformed. You have become an heir in the inheritance that God has pledged to to his son, Jesus Christ. You've become an heir to that as an adopted son on the same standing as his, such that you belong to that inheritance and you belong to the kingdom of light. And God, because of Christ, has counted you part of that. And listen, you can wake up in the morning and say, that's a beautiful sunrise. And that can be a little pebble of joy that sits in your thankfulness thing. And here's the thing. That's not going to be there if you get thrown in prison. What have all the Christians done over the years? The hundreds of thousands of them who have been killed and thrown in prisons without—I mean, could joy not find them? Paul himself was in a Roman prison, not generally a particularly nice place, and he's writing about joy. And he's saying that there is an, and I have a hard time saying this word, indefatigable. You can't tire it out. You can't, you can't get to the end of it. Joy that comes from being properly thankful continually for what Christ has done. And nobody can take that from you. If it's true, it's true. Nobody can untrue it. It belongs to you on the basis of faith. Nobody can break that. Nobody can tear up that contract. Nobody can change God's mind. Nobody can undo his promise, and nobody can make a liar out of him. What he has done, he has done. If you have received it, it belongs to you. It can't unbelong to you. Whatever it is you're thankful for, it is nothing in comparison to that. It is a weight that weighs more than everything else combined. And therefore, what it produces is that no matter what the trial, what the struggle, what the difficulty, what the pain, it doesn't matter whether the struggle is from sickness, humiliation, or your difficulty in fighting the sinful condition within, it weighs more. And therefore, internally, you have endurance, and externally, even towards your enemies, you have patience. It's a big deal. So there's those three things 
all connected to the life of what is produced by a heavenly-minded life, a Christ-minded life. All of them are connected directly to God, directly to Christ, and directly to the gospel. And um, one of my favorite preachers is Charles Simeon, because when he was um, appointed pastor of one of the churches in Cambridge, um, people were so mad that they, um, in those days, you would pay a tax. It was called a pew tax. And if you paid the pew tax, you owned your pew for the year. And it was actually illegal for other people to sit in it. And there were doors on the pews that could be closed and locked so that people could get in. The people hated Charles Simeon so much, they paid their pew tax. And then they had the church warden lock their pew, and so it sat empty for 10 years. Because he was one of these people they called an evangelical Somebody who believed the historical good news, the euangelion, the gospel. He believed the gospel. He believed the Bible. He believed the word of God. He believed Jesus died for your sins. He wasn't too sophisticated for that. And you know what happened? For 10 years, he preached 45, 50 hour-long sermons, and people stood stood in the aisles, because the only place they could get into. Even when the warden, they, they brought in chairs, and the warden would take them out. And they would stand in there, because they, he was the only person in Cambridge who would preach the gospel. Right? And in his sermon on this passage of Colossians, there's this quote, which I think encapsulates this really well. He says, One who has an enlarged view of divine truth, that is, all spiritual wisdom and knowledge, an enlarged view of that, he says, is more studious in fulfilling the will of God. He will not limit himself to the rules prescribed by men, nor will he aim merely to obtain eternal happiness. You see what he's saying? He's saying, the laws of men he will eat for breakfast. He'll be like, like, that's not hard. And even the laws of God, what he thinks he has to do to get to heaven, that's not how he thinks. Even that, he doesn't think in those terms, what do I need to do to get to heaven? So Simeon is saying, the kind of heavenly-mindedness that makes people of no earthly good, the kind that makes them legalists, the kind that our secular neighbors hate, right here Simeon's like, that, in 1700 he could say this. That kind of faith is not the kind of faith people have who are enlarged in their knowledge of God. It's just not how they think. It's not how they feel. It's not the motivational structure of their heart. It's not what Christ-mindedness is. That kind of faith that is no earthly good, that kind of religion that is no good to and for people is not what this is about. He says, but, that is instead, he will consider the relation he, has to, he bears to God, the obligations he has received from him, and the expectation which he has of future benefits. See what he's saying? He's saying, what will possess the person's mind is this, that he has a relationship to God and with God. That the thing that motivates him isn't, if I do this, I can get that. It's that, wait a second, God and I are we're united. I belong to him. He belongs to me. I'm his child. He's my father. There's a redemption he's bringing to the earth that he has given me something significant to do. He sa- it says the obligations he's received from him, that is, that the work of Christ ended with his death and resurrection in terms of him preaching to people, and that work was given to people. It was given to us to tell people the message of the gospel, that we've been given these obligations. And you see, what Simeon says is, the person who understands the divine truth, the truths about God, real spiritual knowledge, wisdom, doesn't say, oh, there's these things God wants me to do. They say, How much, look at the significance my life has because these are things I've been called to do. It's motivating. It's not demotivating. It's not frustrating. It's not angering. It's, 
I, my life has been given a very specific purpose. And then it says, and he says, and the expectations which he has of future benefits. Do you see how he does refer to heaven here? It is heavenly mindedness, but you see, it's not to acquire heaven. It's thankfulness for heaven. You see, it's not fear or pride in trying to access it. It's joy and thankfulness for having already been promised it. Now, you might say, well, it's still heaven. Y yes, but do you see how the heart is completely different? The heart is, you've been generous with me. How can I not be a generous being? How, if I'm related to the one who is generous with me, if I've been given a task to the one who's been generous with me, and if I have already been promised something to the one who's been generous with me, how can I not be generous? How can I not be like the one I'm related to? And how can I not go and do what he has already done for and in me? And so he ends with, and will endeavor to walk worthy of such a father, such a redeemer, and such an unspeakable benefactor. So when you look at these four things, you can see their connection to God, and when you ask how do they come about, he's really clear. He says they come about when he, by this. He says, since the day we heard of you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, so to know what God's will is. But he says, but, but again, prepositions are so important. Through, he wants us to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Through, where is through? through, there it is, through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That is, in the Bible, the general significance of the word spiritual is not you feeling mystical. The significance of the word spiritual in the Bible is that which the Holy Spirit gives. That's what that word means in the Bible. And so he's saying there is a wisdom that is from God, the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual wisdom and understanding. And when that comes to reside in us, the, those four things happen in us. One of the things to think about is, okay, so then what is that? And he already starts it when he says to be, joy, to be joyful in the thankfulness of what God has done. But right after this, um, in verses, chap chapter 1, verses 12, all the way till verse 23, he does nothing but try to s talk about the glory of Christ, the amazingness of Christ, what Christ is like. And then, when he gets done doing that, in, ver in 124 through till 223, he just spends all his time talking about the glory of the gospel, what Christ has done, who Christ is, what Christ has done, who Christ is, what Christ has done, who Christ is, what Christ has done. Now think about this. Paul is rotting in a Roman prison, maybe with Epaphras, their pastor. They don't have a pastor. They have some guy they've never met named Tychicus who's showing up with a letter. Paul has written longer letters to other people. He's probably not short on papyrus. This is all he writes to these people. He writes them four pages that the first half is completely taken up with these ethereal ideas about the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel. Why does Paul, why is this all he gives them to feed on? They're a minority, persecuted, often killed, out in the middle of nowhere. They don't have any apostles at their church. They're pastors in jail. They've never even met Paul. How on top of things can they be? They get this new pastor guy who has this sort of weird name with a three-page letter that talks nothing about the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel, and that's all they have to feed on. Why? 
because Paul believed it was enough. It was enough for him in that prison, and he believed it was enough for them. He believed that the glory of God and the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel was so weighty that it would outweigh everything that came against them. So that, so that in terms of strength, they would be courageous enough to be, have endurance and patience, and in terms, of the, in terms of happiness, they would have joy in the thankfulness of the glory of God. That's what he believed. Which brings us back to that verse that says that we will receive all endurance and patience by the might of his glory. The NIV translates his glorious might, which is a, tr- is a, is a perfectly reasonable translation of, but the, it literally translates the might of his glory, which when you put it in the of, it's called the genitive in both English and Greek, um, it, it's ambiguous. It can either be his might, which is so amazing, it's glorious, or it can mean his glory, which is so glorious that it is intrinsically mighty. And I kind of struggled with that kind of all week. Looking at this theme and trying to figure this out, this is what um, Doug Moose says. He was one of my professors in seminary. He said, the translations are almost unanimous in using the adjective glorious to qualify the divine might. Echoing the opinion of most commentators that doxes, which is the Greek word for glory, should be constructed as a qualitative genitive, meaning he's mighty. How mighty is he? Right? What's the quality of that might? It's glorious. It's a qualitative genitive, right? He's mighty. He's gloriously mighty. Right? He says, but one might wonder if this interpretation gives appropriate value to the very significant word glory. This word occurs frequently in scriptures as a very basic characterization of God signifying his weighty, overwhelming presence. The English glorious is too easily cast loose from the God-focused meaning as when we speak of a glorious sunset. It might then be preferable to take the genitive as a possessive, the strength that God supplies his people in accordance with and in and is the expression of his own intrinsic glory, meaning his glory is mighty. That the way endurance and patience is produced is that his glory is so weighty that it is mighty. And that might produces endurance and patience. You see, one of the things that's said about secularism that's so destructive is not that it makes atheists of us. You see, there's a lot of us that believe that we live in a culture that is relatively secular and that we're believers in God and that if we fall for secular culture, we'll become not believers in God. That's totally wrong, okay? It's totally wrong. Secularization is the marginalizing of God. It's to say, there might be God, there might not a God, be a God. It just doesn't matter. What matters is these things right in front of us. The wood, the technology, the stuff, the eating, the drinking, the doing, the economics, the politics, the world, that's, that's what's real, right? There might be a God, there might not be a God. If you want to believe in God, that's fine, do it in your private, whatever, but whatever, right? One um, theologian, sociologist said this, 
that secularization is the work of culture to make God weightless. David Wells said that. So here's the question I have for you about this, and I think this is really important. Whether or not you believe in God is not the big question. The vast majority of Americans at least believe in God. So what? Yes, you have to believe in God to be on the right track, according to Jesus, but the question is not, do you believe in God? Here's the question. The question is, how much does your God weigh? That's the question. And I don't mean physically. I'm talking about the weight of significance. How significant is God and his weight in the decisions of your life? In how you think about things and the actions you take and how you spend your time and what you do with your money and how you think things through and what you feel about things and how you emotionally react and all those kinds of things. How much does God weigh? Because what what secularity does is it takes this scale and it takes God and it shrinks him down. He says, you can have a little God stone, that's fine. And then they they put a hundred pounds on this side. And what what this says is that in all through, in the rest of Colossians, next four or five sermons are going to really focus on this, is that the whole point here is that when you understand the glory of God in the glory of Christ, in the glory of the gospel, what Christ has done for you and for the world, and you really begin to apprehend it to where you could be said to understand it in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There is a weightiness to it that changes everything. It is so heavy that whatever seeks to tip you negatively so that you can't endure it and you can't be patient in it. It just can't. There is, just is no weight of anything strong enough to break the endurance and patience that we have in Christ. And when it comes to joy, what seeks to come in and just destroy how you, your happiness in God, the fundamental joy of thankfulness that comes from what God has done, there's all kinds of things that'll be like, no, this is sadder than that is good. This is worse than that is happy. There just isn't anything. There just isn't anything. And so there is a stability to our willingness to do good, our desire to see the truth, no matter how painful it is to see what's true about us or anything else, our strength for endurance and patience in all things that would come against us, in our capacity for stable, unbreakable, divine joy. All of those things come from an apprehension of the glory of God in the glory of Christ in the glory of the gospel. Um, Now, you might be like, well, okay, wait, so are you saying that God doesn't do it with his direct power? Well, that could go either way, but if you just look in the book of Ephesians, he actually says that it's both directly. Look at these verses. Ephesians is like the sister book to Colossians. It, it has some, some similar s- sentences verbatim. They're very similar to each other. And this is how Paul says it in Ephesians. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Do you see how that's cognitive, heart, will, 
us understanding on the deepest level. He's saying, I'm, your, your eyes have a sense of seeing, like your heart knows things. It has the ability to say, oh, I see it. And there's a knowledge that goes with that. And he's like, there's a, there's a kind of knowledge to the hope to which God has called you. I want you to see it. That is, I want you to apprehend God's glory, right? He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You see what he's saying? It's both. I want you to see his glory, and part of his glory is his power. And do you know what his power mainly does? What, do, what does the Holy Spirit do? The powerful Holy Spirit do when he comes in? What does he mainly do? He mainly goes into the seat of your will and conscience, and he takes what you've apprehended and seen about the glory of God, and he says, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You can believe that. You can trust that. You can walk that out. He convicts us according to righteousness. And he supports us and reminds us of everything Jesus taught us, the Bible says. He takes our apprehension of God's glory, hopefully growing as it is, and he says, that's right. And that is the expression of God's power so that our apprehension of God would be more and more weighty and would stabilize and empower our willingness to do good works, our desire to know him truthfully, our courage and patience and endurance, and our joy. Sorry, I filled out the worksheet for this one. I don't want to go into that right now. Here's what, here, I want to say one thing about, about this. This is one of the reasons why at High Point Church, when we summarize what we're doing as a church, grow is so important. Connect, grow, serve. And what do we say under grow? There's two things we always say. Our understanding of the gospel and our knowledge of the Bible. Why? Because when Paul was sitting in a Roman prison and he could write two pages to people he didn't want to fall apart, he told them what scripture taught. He summarized it for them so that they could know the content that they could believe. And the main content he focused on was the glory of what Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done. That good news which we use, for which we use the term gospel. And that is why we come before you and we say, we're having these classes. Be part of a small group. We're going we're gonna to preach through this book of the Bible. It's one of the reasons why when you come to church most of the time, I'm preaching out of a Bible passage. And I'm going to talk about the gospel. Why? Because what we need so desperately— Because, I, listen, I could do the five things for a better marriage, right? I mean, until my wife walks out on me, I can pretend everything's going great, and I could do, like, nine things for a better marriage every week, Right? Until one of my kids becomes a real screw-up, I could do nine parenting points. I could do that. I don't do that. Why? Because I only have 50 to 85 minutes of Sunday to talk to you. And what do I want to focus on? I want to focus on the thing we all need. I need to preach it to myself, and then I need to preach it. What we need is to be, for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened and to be able to apprehend the hope of his glorious inheritance to the saints. That through the empowering of his power by his glorious might or the might of his glory, that we would have endurance and patience. 
that through joy, out of thankfulness, because Christ has given us an inheritance, rescued us from the dominion of darkness, changed us from the inside out, given us all things, because of all of that, we can be happy. That's what we need. That is, heavenly mindedness is Christ mindedness. And in that heavenly mindedness, we will be earthly good. We'll be salt and we'll be light. Let's pray. Father, we lift up um, our own hearts to you and we pray that you would help us to embrace the prayer that we should have for ourselves and for each other, that we would have a knowledge, a complete knowledge of your will for us so that we could please you in every way, knowing that if we please you, we'll be doing good to our neighbors. And we recognize that that knowledge of will comes through all spiritual knowledge and wisdom, wisdom and understanding. Father, we want it. We just, we want to understand how great Christ is. We want to understand in our hearts, in the deepest places of us, in the seat of our conscience, in the fulcrum of our will, in the depths of our hearts, we want to see how glorious and weighty Christ is and what Christ has done. And we want to be people of whom it is said about us, even by our enemies, that our lives abound in every good work grow in the knowledge of God, strengthened in all endurance and patience, and that we have a joy and thankfulness that is unbreakable. Help us to be Christ-minded and so heavenly-minded that we're of earthly good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? With, we're going to sing.